finding that place of ease and simplicity. There's a third step now in working with these emotions. We go from the foundation of clear recognition of what it is that's arising. We go from that to the place of acceptance, of being willing to open to what's there. Now we want to bring the quality of wisdom into our experience of emotions. And I think there's a very aptly named phrase describing this, uh, which we're all familiar with, emotional intelligence. Uh, And it really takes some emotional intelligence, you know, kind of. So there's a wisdom side, a wisdom component to what we're feeling. So now I want to talk about two aspects of this wisdom component. One is the ability to discern the difference between skillful and unskillful. You could say emotions are what the Buddha called mind states, mental mental states. And this definition is not some metaphysical absolute. It's really a very pragmatic definition of wholesome and unwholesome. Wholesome is those states that contribute to our happiness and unwholesome of those in, in, a, in a deep way, not, not a superficial way, that are the genuine cause of our happiness and the unwholesome of those states which create for ourselves or others suffering in the world. So it's a very, it's a very pragmatic look at the quality of the feeling and the effect of the feeling Now, the wise discernment between skillful and unskillful, or wholesome and unwholesome, is central to the Buddhist teaching. I mean, she's just talking about this all the time. But in our culture, for the reasons that have been brought up earlier, it's a very delicate matter to make this discernment. Because it's a very easy step for most of us to go from the understanding that anger is an unwholesome state of mind to I'm a bad person for feeling it or it's wrong that it has arisen. Those are two very different things but we've been very conditioned to that move. So it takes some clarity here to understand the difference. We can discern, yes, this is a state that's suffering in itself that leads to suffering. This is a state that's happy in itself that leads to more happiness. To discern that difference without either a judgment about ourselves or a judgment about the fact that it has arisen. So that's really important. Because if we're not making that clear distinction then the judgment, oh, I'm a really bad person for this arising, or, oh, here it is again, this shouldn't be happening again, that's only leading to more judgment and more afflictive emotion. So it's a cycle, it's not at all helpful.
It's important to make this discernment between what states are wholesome or skillful, which are unskillful, not for the purpose of judging ourselves. That's not the point of the discernment. The point of it is to see and to understand which states should be cultivated, which are the ones that bring happiness in our lives, that bring peace in our lives. If we're not distinguishing between the two, we won't know. You know, and so we'll be doing a lot of things wanting to be happy and they're just making us more miserable because we're not actually seeing the difference of these mind states. So it's not for the purpose of judging ourselves, it's for the purpose of seeing what should be cultivated, what should be abandoned. Sometimes we can let go of unskillful states just in a moment of discernment. You know, we see it and we let go. Sometimes it's a whole process. Sometimes this takes time and we don't have the ability to let go in a moment. So I want to give a few examples of times in my experience where just through the clear seeing of it could let go of an unwholesome state and foster a wholesome one. I'll give a few examples here. One time when I went to Burma to be in the monastery, um, I was just there for a few months. When I first got there, a friend of mine who had been up at IMS had already been there, I don't know, three or four years, you know, doing intensive practice. So he was just, uh, he was light and glow. I mean, his like a certain luminosity. You can imagine three years of intensive practice and you could just feel it you know just his whole being was light and I came and I had been you know working and busy in this country and kind of just felt you know into that situation and my mind at first was kind of uh, I guess it was a kind of envy you know I said oh boy he's you know he's really in this great space and my mind was wandering my body hurt and and then it didn't take too long until I realized, oh yeah, there's this kind of unpleasant, unskillful state in my mind that it wasn't making me happy feeling this. You know, it, it was suffering. So I started doing just, and when I saw that, I started, recognized it, and then realized I don't have to hold on to this. And I started doing what in Buddhism is called the meditation on sympathetic joy, you know, where it's a specific meditation where you take delight in the happiness of others rather than the more usual envy or jealousy. So there are a few points in here. I had to recognize that the envy was there. If I hadn't recognized, I just would have been swimming in it. I had to get to that place of acceptance. Oh, yeah, okay. This is here. What does it feel like? Let me feel that I felt the suffering. I had to have this discernment, this is not a wholesome state. Can I let go of this into a more wholesome one? So all of these steps were taking place. I started doing this meditation on sympathetic joy, and there's, there's a particular practice. You think of the person in really good circumstances. May your happiness continue. May it increase. May your happiness never leave you. you know, and you just start saying this again and again something very interesting happens. 
you start feeling happy. <laughs> it's a happy feeling to wish other people happy. So that just reinforces it. We can, we can train our minds. You know, we don't have to just be living out old patterns. But we need these steps of the recognition, the acceptance of the discernment. Another time, different situation. Just to see how quickly our minds can change if we're aware in this way. I was at home with this friend, long, you know, 20-year relationship, complex relationship. Lots, there's a lot going on in it. So we were having this conversation about some difficult thing. And we were just sitting in my living room, and he was sitting you know, in the chair across from me, and we were going back and forth, and I, there was just this sense of kind of spoken and implicit judgments going back and forth, and mm, polarization, and not a good feeling. So at a certain point in this conversation, I realized this doesn't feel good, <laughs> you know. And I saw I'm just getting really caught in my own judging mind, you know, and kind of the positionality. And this just happened, what I'm about to describe just happened intuitively. Looking back, I could actually see how it all happened, but in the moment, it just came. When I saw the difficulty, when I saw the suffering of the state, the emotion I was in, you know, with a, with a sense of a kind of investigation, what happened was, I saw how I was getting caught in my own position. And so instead of staying identified with this, with me being you know, this body and mind and this friend over there, you know, that sense of separation of... What my mind did was it became the space which held us both. Can you get the feeling? You know, going from I'm here, he's there, you know, in conflict... The mind just, the mind opened, becoming the space which was just holding the two of us. And it was remarkable. Just in that shift of perspective, from identifying with myself to, I say this loosely now, to becoming identified or becoming the common space, in which we were both present, in that instant, the mind went from this judging, grumpy, unpleasant state to this feeling of metta, of loving kindness. And I saw that the space which holds us all is characterized by the feeling of love. And this was, I wasn't thinking this out. So just as an experiment sometime, do you know what I mean by just letting the mind become the space holding us all. You have to play a little bit with this, but it's a change of perspective. Okay, one last example of a radical shift. And this, I'm a little hesitant to use it, but I will. This is quite a few years ago. I was in this relationship uh, with a friend, um, we've been in a relationship for a few years and at a certain point she decided it was done. I hadn't decided it was done. 
but it was done. So we have this little conversation <laughs> in which he lets me know <laughs> that it's done. It was hard, you know, I was, because I would have liked it to continue. So I'm just going through these different feelings. But I, I have this great kind of curiosity or interest in what my heart and mind are doing. You know, and so when I'm suffering, it always piques my interest. It's like, <laughs> it does. It's like, okay, well, what's going on here and why am I suffering? You know, what's, what's th- these are the four noble truths of the Buddhist teaching. There's suffering, there's a cause, there's an end. There's a way to the end. These life situations are as deep Dharma practice as anything on the cushion. You know, right in that situation, the Four Noble Truths, they were right there. And it wasn't theoretical. Okay, so when I looked, and I looked deeply into myself, I saw something very simple and very profound for me. I saw that if I kept identifying with the wanting it to continue, I was going to suffer. And if I didn't identify with that wanting, I wouldn't suffer. And I saw, and this, is, this was the kind of key moment, I saw that I had a choice. Nobody was making me be attached to that wanting. The wanting may have been there, but what was the relationship to it? That was totally up to me. You know, if we bring wisdom to those moments, nobody is making us be attached or identified with the wanting that's arising. And it was such a profound, I don't have to do this. If I go this way, I suffer. If I go this way, I don't suffer. Okay. (laughs) And it just became so clear. Now, the reason I was a little hesitant to say that, as an example, is that it happened that for me in that moment, it was just a moment. You know, I just, oh yeah, I don't have to do this. But I don't want to imply that everybody will necessarily have that same experience. Maybe for other people, it's more of a process, you know. And you look and you see it for a moment and then get caught back up again in the wanting. But if we understand that we can bring wisdom to this, we can bring some discernment, what's skillful, what's unskillful, what's wholesome, what's unwholesome, what brings happiness, what brings suffering, when we bring some wisdom to it, whether we're liberated just in a moment or it's a process, it's something we can actually do in our lives. And we don't simply have to wait it out. So I just offer that to you as a possibility for exploration uh, because so often we don't see any other possibility. You know, we're in despair, we're in anguish, we're in sorrow, we're in whatever it is. And we oh, well, you know, this is normal. Relationship just broke up. I should be feeling this way. Okay, I'll just bear it. I think there's more opportunity there than we often uh, engage with. 
So, again, it's for each of you to explore for yourself. It's not that you should believe this. I'm just saying it might be worth looking. Sometimes we don't discern the difference between skillful and unskillful because, as I alluded to a little earlier, the unskillful can be so delicious. You know, and we're just enjoying it too much. And so we're not really seeing that it's unskillful and that on a deeper level is causing us suffering. So I want to read one thing which I think is my favorite example of this. It's uh, from the writer Anne Lamott. And I read this in an article. And she said she was describing how difficult it was to deal with the triumphs of other writers, particularly if one of them happens to be your friend. So this is what she wrote. It can wreak just the tiniest bit of havoc with your self-esteem to find that you are hoping for small bad things to happen to this friend. (laughs) For, say, her head to blow up. (laughs) (laughs) It's just so honest. This points to some other dimension in this journey that I feel is really important, and that is having a sense of humor about one's mind. It's essential, because as, especially we're in this process of discerning skillful and unskillful, and the tendency we have to self-judgment, you know, as a counterbalance to that, being able to laugh at ourselves you know, and to laugh at all the things that the mind is coming up with. The Buddha expressed the seductive power of the unwholesome in a, in a very uh, striking image. He was talking about anger. He said, anger with its poisoned source and honeyed tip. You know, and we know, I mean, we've all, I think, had that experience when we're angry about something, particularly when we feel we're right, you know, and there's a kind of self-righteousness there and it's powerful. You know, this anger comes and it energizes us and we feel strong and there's a honeyed tip to it. But it would be very helpful and insightful to really go down to the root. You know, what is the quality of the emotion at its root? How do we feel? What is its effect? Um, and again, I, I need to say this very often because it's so easily misunderstood. I'm not suggesting that somehow if we understand all this anger should never arise and we're bad if it does arise and it's none of that. It's all It is going to arise for all of us at different times. Not only anger, all of the others. Can we use these, the power of the of the emotion, really in the service of investigation and liberation, rather than simply drowning in them? That's the point. It's not about judging them. It's not about judging ourselves.
If we don't begin to exercise this emotional intelligence, this discernment, this is skillful, this is unskillful, what happens is we just spend our lives acting out our conditioned patterns. You know, because we're not bringing any investigation to them. And so we've all been conditioned in different ways, and some people be more on the greedy side, and some people be more on the aversive side, the depressive side, the agitated side. If we don't really look and investigate, we just act them out. So that's the power of mindfulness, the power of awareness. We don't need to be enslaved by these feelings. Okay, now I want to hit upon a point that's probably most uh, applicable to those of you who are experienced in meditation and you know have some background in Buddhism because it's a particular danger for uh, meditators. Sometimes we overlook the discernment between what's skillful and what's unskillful because we up-level too soon. And by that I mean so much of the Buddhist teachings and the deepest wisdom is about the emptiness of it all. Empty meaning selfless. There's no substantiality to any of it. It's not referring back to anyone. You know, so this teaching on emptiness, emptiness of self, is just so, you, know, you could say it's at the heart of the deepest wisdom. But until that's fully actualized, it's very easy to up-level. Oh, it doesn't matter what mind state is coming because it's all empty. And so we can get involved in some very unskillful mental states, some very unskillful behavior, as we have seen happen in many spiritual scenes. When people have abdicated this responsibility to discern this is an unwholesome mind state or this is wholesome in the light oh it's all empty it doesn't matter I want to read something this is from one of the greatest of the Buddhist masters uh, Nagarjuna Uh, he nailed this one so and again, if, if you're just new to practice and this doesn't make so much sense, just bear with it. But it's, it's particularly important uh, for those of you quite involved in the Buddhist teachings. So this is uh, Nagarjuna. He said, It is sad to see those who mistakenly believe in material, concrete reality. That is the, the common belief that things are really solid and real and So it's sad to see those who mistakenly believe, you know, in that substantiality of things. But far more pitiful are those who are attached to emptiness. Those who believe in things can be helped through various various kinds of practice, through skillful means. But those who fall into the abyss of emptiness find it almost impossible to re-emerge since there seem to be no handholds, no steps, no gradual progression, nothing to do. This is really important. You know, because there's so often the teachings are emphasizing just this more ultimate level, which is more ultimate. 
So it's not to deny that. Things are empty. But we have to totally integrate the understanding of the relative world where this discernment of skillful and unskillful operates. There needs to be a union of these two levels. Otherwise, we can fall into big trouble, as has happened very often. And so to sum this up, it was expressed very well by the Korean Zen master who died recently, uh, Sung San, who's a wonderful teacher. Expressing both of these levels, he said, there's no right and there's no wrong. But right is right and wrong is wrong. (laughs) So that has to be our life. We need to come to the wisdom of understanding there's no right and no wrong at the same time seeing that right is right and wrong is wrong. Okay. This discernment of skillful and unskillful really brings in a moral dimension to psychology. So it's not just, psychology is not just about seeing what's there. It's developing the wisdom to discern that this is skillful, this is unskillful. Why is this so important? It's critically important because we're not talking about simply emotions that are arising in our own minds, which there's reason enough to make this discernment, but very often, in fact, probably most of the time, we are also acting these emotions out. So if we're not emotionally intelligent, we will be acting out a lot of unskillful states. And we see this in the world. Why is there so much avoidable suffering in the world? And we see it, we see it in our own particular lives. We see it on a global scale. Why is there violence? Why is there war? Why is there hunger? You know, why is there injustice of all kinds? It's people acting out mind states of greed, of fear, of hatred, of anger, that's what's happening. And all the behavior is just a manifestation of these states arising in people's minds. If we don't discern the difference, we're just part of that same situation. You know? And so this is not like a hobby. You know, there's something absolutely necessary for us to do here. We, if we really value... peace in the world we've got to do our work otherwise we're just part of the problem so I've been talking a lot about recognizing the unskillful states of mind part of it is cultivating the skillful ones and at a certain point I had this idea which I never quite how many how many therapists are in Psychologists. Okay, a lot. Uh, what I'm about to say, I had an idea for a whole different kind of therapy. So I'll put it out and maybe one of you will. <laughs> you know, in Buddhism, there's a, there's a certain list called uh, the paramis or the paramitas, and they're called the perfections, and they're just the different wholesome qualities of mind. 
like generosity, like love, like wisdom, like renunciation, uh, uh, like um, resoluteness, equanimity, wisdom. Okay, so there's this list. I had this idea for paramita therapy. And so somebody comes, you know, and they're in all kinds, they're just in a bad way. You know, they're really unhappy in their lives. Instead of trying to kind of sort all that out, I thought, wouldn't it be far out if the therapy, okay, for the next week, I just want you to practice generosity. Just, you know, every opportunity you have, practice generosity. And spend a week or spend a month doing that. Little ways, big ways. Every time you have a thought to give something, give it. You know? And then you take another week. Okay, practice morality, you know, the precepts. Or practice love and kindness. At the end of a month or the end of six months, I'll bet that person would be a lot happier. <laughs> anyway, so that's a, that's a little aside. <laughs> Uh-huh. And then doing? Okay, great. Oh, well, maybe it's all done already. Okay. Oh, great. Great, okay. Yeah. Uh-huh. Okay, I think there's great potential in it. Because these wholesome states, and this is what the Buddha was pointing out, Wholesome states of mind make us happy. So this is not rocket science. (laughs) We just have to do it. We have to practice it. Okay. Some distinctions between wholesome and unwholesome are very obvious. Greed doesn't feel good in the moment and it doesn't have a good effect. Hatred. I mean, I think there are very few people in this world... I don't know, maybe there are some, but who would say, oh yeah, hatred really makes me feel happy. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we have, this is kind of obvious. Hatred, you know, is unwholesome, love is wholesome. But there are some states which we commonly confuse. So it's not always so obvious. Some states where we take what's unwholesome to be wholesome. So that gets tricky. Because here we're doing things which we think will make us happy and are actually causing us suffering. So I'll give just a few examples of these and you might well know of more. But a very classic one is the confusion of attachment and love. Yeah. Most people, I would say, in their intimate, close relationships find it very hard to distinguish between these two mind states and feelings. I mean, it just seems the most natural thing in the world to be attached to those we love. And sometimes people even find it hard to imagine loving without attachment. I think this is worthy of investigation because in my experience, they're two very different feelings. When I think of the most loving times for myself, the feeling is always one of, it's just the heart going out. It's a generosity. You know, it's a wanting the other person to be happy and just loving them. Attachment, when I look to see, not 
theoretically, what it feels like, it's always, it's a holding. It's exactly the opposite of loving. And it's a great discovery. And this just touches so many deep things in us. It's such a discovery to realize that attachment does not enhance love. But somehow we think it does. You know, or we just have it so intertwined. It's worth looking at. You know, and just to see, okay, is it possible to separate it out a little bit? And to really see for yourself, not to believe this, just to see for yourself what's the difference in these two feelings. Another one that's often confused is the feeling of guilt and the feeling of remorse. You know, we've all done unskillful things in our lives. You know, and at different times they're going to come up. A common response is feeling guilty. And I had this situation arise on retreat. I had done something. I felt really guilty about it. But I was suffering so much from the guilt. Again, the suffering piqued my interest. What is happening here? Why am I so caught in this? And I saw something really interesting. I saw that guilt is an ego trip. That's all it was. It was a great big self, a great big I in a negative way. I'm so bad. I, I, I. I shouldn't have done it. I. It was just about I. It was about ego. And as soon as I saw that, you know, often in the Buddhist text, the Buddha's confronting Mara, you know, the personification of illusion and ignorance, and often... In the text, the Buddha will say, Mara, I see you. So when I saw this about guilt, I developed this technique I called wagging the finger at Mara. <laughs> uh, so when the guilt came, oh, Mara, I see you. So as not to be seduced. And then I saw the difference between that, which is a kind of whole selfing thing, to a genuine remorse. You know, yeah, that was not a skillful thing to do. So kind of just bring wisdom to it, see... Yeah, you know, caused harm to myself, caused harm to other people. So we see that it's unskillful. We take responsibility for it. There's a kind of regret that we did it and move on. There's a quality of forgiveness. There's a quality of seeing the impermanence of it. It's not this self-laceration of guilt. Do you see the difference? They're really different mind states. Uh, there's a long list and won't go through all of them but maybe one more which is it's quite subtle but interesting given the world situation and that is the difference between compassion and sorrow um, and again in this kind of dialogue, you know, when, keep in mind that different people will use words differently. And so, the way I'm using the word sorrow, and I'll explain, points to a difference between that mind state and compassion. It may be that other people use the word sorrow in a different way. So, let's just understand that there always needs to be a 
precision in discussion of what a person actually means when they're using a particular word. Otherwise, there can be a lot of confusion. In this distinction, and I found it very interesting, compassion is the feeling, it's the opening to the suffering that's there and the very strong feeling of wanting to alleviate it. Right? So compassion is that call to action. It's like we feel the suffering in ourselves or in another person, and it's maybe some of you remember the book How Can I Help by Ram Dass and Paul Gorman beautiful book and it's that feeling in the face of suffering how can I help what can I do sorrow is feeling in the way I'm using the word is the feeling of the suffering and having aversion to it now this is subtle you know it's a subtle difference But the aversion, when we have aversion to the suffering, the aversion is an unwholesome mind state. And just the phrase, you know, we kind of say people are just overwhelmed by sorrow or drowning in sorrow or can get lost in the sorrow. And it's... uh, It can be a debilitating emotion. Compassion is never debilitating. You know, and, and there's, even in the face of suffering, there's a quality of upliftment that comes from the compassion. How can I help? It's a responsiveness. Do you get a sense of the difference here? Again, look for yourselves. Try, try to, to tease this out. Because there's plenty of suffering around us in the world. Are we overwhelmed by it? That's a good indication that there's aversion. Can we open to it with compassion? Where we feel it, how can I help? What can I do? Very different. Okay, so there's the recognition. There's the acceptance. There's the discerning, the, what I call, Dan Goldman calls, the emotional intelligence. You know, discerning what's skillful and unskillful. The last step in this whole sequence of working with afflictive emotions, and really working with all emotions, is the most difficult and the most liberating. So I hope you're not too sleepy now. Kind of, this is the. <laughs> so by the end of the afternoon, oh yeah, this is the most liberating. <laughs> And that is learning how to open to them. And this, now I'm talking about all emotions. To open to them, to feel them, without being identified with them. That is the key. This is the understanding that transforms all our emotions, whether afflictive or otherwise, into wisdom. So what does identification with an emotion mean? We've all had the experience a million times. It's that feeling in an emotion of just being lost in it, being carried away by it, drowning in it. The sense, this is me. I'm angry. I'm sad. I'm depressed. I'm fearful. I'm afraid. I'm guilty. It's the I. Strong sense of I. This is me. This is who I am. This is what defines me. 
very different than the understanding and perspective of sadness is present, anger is present, fear has arisen. Very different than I'm afraid, I'm lonely, I'm whatever. Seeing this distinction and learning about it from the inside is hugely freeing. But it's not enough to know it theoretically. We really have to to practice. It's seeing that the I and the mine is extra. It's not in the emotion itself. Anger angers. Fear fears. Love loves. Each one of these emotions are arising out of certain conditions, both internal and external. Conditions come together, a certain emotion arises, the emotion feels itself. It's not that it belongs to someone. There's a, from a Tibetan teaching, there's a, an image that says, Clouds that wander through the sky have no roots, no home. Okay, so just for a moment, imagine a cloud with roots. It's not the nature of clouds. Clouds that wander through the sky have no roots, no home. All the thoughts and emotions that are arising are like those clouds in the sky. They arise out of conditions. They're not uncaused but they're not rooted in self. They're not rooted in I. And it's when we identify with them, when we take them to be self, take them to be I, that's where we get imprisoned by them. When we understand the conditioned nature of all these emotions, We see them, we feel them, we're open to them, but we don't take either them or ourselves quite so intensely serious because we're freed even a little bit from the grip of this identification with them. So we're in a very different relationship to our emotional life. Okay, going back to the very beginning now the Buddha's words to remember that all of these emotions the afflictive ones particularly but all the others arise as visitors in the mind they're not intrinsic to awareness itself it's just that they've come so often we think that they live here (laughs) but they don't when we're not mindful when we don't work in some of the ways that I've suggested, we just get caught. They obscure the natural ease, the natural clarity, the natural openness of mind. And when we do bring awareness and discernment and acceptance and non-identification, then all of these emotions, however intense they might be, actually are the vehicle for our awakening. And so it's really a question of how we use them, how we work with them. So, that's the story. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, so we'll have some time for...